New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Dear listener, thanks for joining us. I'd like to begin today's conversation by giving you a flavor of the writings and observations of my guest, Margaret Rinkle. She writes, The natural world's perfect indifference has always been the best cure for my own anxieties. Every living thing, every bird and mammal and reptile and amphibian, every tree and shrub and flower and moss, is pursuing its own vital purpose, a purpose that sets my human concerns in a larger context. The dramas and worries and pain that are the warp of my life, woven tightly through the light and love and joy that are its weft, don't register on the blue jay at all. The earthworms beneath the soil have the least idea of the frets that pluck at my heart. In their rest, I find rest. And the natural world is everywhere, not just in my wild yard or on my favorite trail at a local park or in the woods beside a borrowed cabin. It's in the branches of the sidewalk trees as they begin to split open and change the grayscape to green. It's in the sparrows and the starlings taking nesting materials into the cracks around the windows and doorways of commercial buildings. It's in a sky full of drifting clouds and in the sand hill cranes flying beneath the clouds. So, dear listener, join me as I sit down with Margaret Rinkle, who will assuredly inspire us with her observations and reports on the natural beauty, human decency, and persistent hope. Margaret Rinkle is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, where her essays appear weekly and has been recognized with numerous prestigious awards for her writing. She's the founding editor of Chapter 16, a daily literary publication of Humanities Tennessee, and is a graduate of Auburn University and the University of South Carolina, and is now living in Nashville. 
Her books include Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss, and Graceland at Last, Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South. And today we'll be exploring the book, The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. So join us for the next hour as we explore creatures and plants that exist in our own backyards with our guest, Margaret Wrinkle. I'm speaking with Margaret from her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Margaret, welcome. Thank you, Justine. Thank you for having me. I wish you would come and read my book to me all the way through. It sounds so much better in your voice than in mine. I want to tell you, I just delighted in this book. You stimulated so much writing for me. I started to recall all sorts of wild animals and things that I have experienced in my life that I had forgotten. Thank you for this enormous gift. What I'd like to start with is kind of what you start the book with, actually, is a birding tradition. The first bird you see in the new year will set the tone for the rest of the year. So I'd love for you to tell me about that birding tradition. And and maybe even if you'd share, did you do it this year and what bird came to you this year? I do it every year. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a tradition I read about for the first time in a book by Leanda Lynn Haupt. And I had not, I'm not a true birder in the sense that I don't really have a, a life list or any list. I don't go to places explicitly hoping to see or look to look for birds. Um, I'm just a Really, I'm just a a person who um, who likes to know as much as I can about my neighbors, about my wild neighbors. And so this was an unfamiliar tradition to me, not being a true birder. But ever since I read about it, I have been doing it every year. This year, my bird, my first bird, it, and it's called all kinds of different things. That's why I'm hesitating over the how to express it. But my first bird was a blue jay. And I was happy about that because a blue jay is a corvid. It belongs to the group of corvids, the group to which crows also belong. And in the book, um, the book is not a book about crows or even about birds specifically, but I, I write about the extravagant intelligence of that group of birds. Corvids have a brain to body ratio that um, is huge. The brain is really extravagantly large in these birds. Only primates have a bigger brain to body ratio. And so they're so clever and funny. And I, I remember this didn't happen in January. It's not the, in January. Birds are very focused on survival. But uh, last summer we had a red-tailed hawk fledgling who would be in the nearby trees 
crying continually for someone to come and feed it. I think its parents were trying to teach it to be a little bit more resourceful. And there was a, a blue a blue jay in my yard who started imitating the, the baby hawk. And I couldn't see any reason for doing it. I, it, it wasn't doing it. Sometimes blue jays have reportedly... Um, used uh, hawk imitations to clear a bird feeder so they can get to the food themselves, sending the other birds scattering. But I loved, um, this bird just seemed to be having fun playing around with music and song. I love it. And you know, when I read something in your book that reminded me of a short story that Mark Twain wrote called What Stumped the Blue Jays? And you can get it online. Just look it up. It's just delightful. And one of the things that he says is that uh, whatever a blue jay feels, it can put into language. And then it, it also, <laughs> he says, um, a blue jay can outswear any gentleman miners, any gentleman in the mines, or yeah. I, I had remembered any sailor, but it was that's not what he wrote. But anyway, and that reminds me also of crows that have all that language. If you kind of if you listen to them, it, is that right? Have you you hear the different inflections? And what's your experience of crows? Well, crows are the 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 interesting thing about crows. One of the interesting things about crows is in in lang their language, is that they. I mean, we of course associate them with the caw caw. Everybody recognizes the sound of a crow, but they have many many dozens of vocalizations that are apparently very clear to one another what they mean. And um, and unlike most other birds. Crows continue to talk to one another through the winter months. Um, most songbirds, especially little bitty birds, uh, they're using all of their calories to keep warm. You know, it, it, winter is a time when there's there's there are fewer resources. There's less to eat because um, you know there are no seeds. There are very few berries left. All the insects have died or or underground or in the leaf litter. And and so there. And meanwhile, just when when the food sources are disappearing, the it's getting colder and colder, and the birds are having to shiver to keep warm, and that burns a lot of calories. And so they don't, generally speaking, spend a lot of time singing or calling to one another. But crows keep right on talking. They're always talking to one another. And in fact, crows are more vocal, at least around here in the winter when they've flocked up again in the mating season they they separate into different territories to mate and raise their young but they come back together when the weather begins to get cold again in the fall and they spend all winter just talking 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 i never you know i i want to say that i had an experience of Crows. I, I was on a vision quest at one point where I was three days out by myself on the desert to the east of the Sierra near Mount Whitney. And the first day I saw three crows riding the thermals as if they were hawks. I mean, they weren't flapping at all. They were just gliding. And I was so unusual. I looked at them and I thought, oh, my goodness. 
Then on the third day, Margaret, I heard all this squawking. I mean, just the biggest ruckus. And I looked up and there were the three crows flying back up the thermal in the opposite direction. And they, I, I just felt like they were swearing to one another and saying, <laughs> whose idea was this? It was, it was just funny. It made me burst out into laughter. And I, what you do and what you have accomplished in this book is you, you're helping us get focused on something other than our computer screens or our TV screens or whatever, and really starting to notice what is right outside our door. I mean, all that you've talked about right now is is just that, that you've noticed how the crows will keep talking all through the winter and the other birds don't. How did you start to get interested in this in the first place? I can't remember ever not being interested in it. Um, you know, I remember as a little girl, I think this is partly my age. I'll be 62 this fall. Um, and so I I grew up at a place in lower Alabama at a time in the early 60s when parents weren't quite so vigilant. I spent my whole childhood outdoors. That's a big subject that I want to get into because I'm really excited to hear you say that. And we'll we'll talk about that, about um, I think you call it feral children. I love it. I love it. So I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Margaret Wrinkle, and she is the author of many books, including The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. And if you want to know more about her, you can go to her website, margaretwrinkle.com, and she spells her name, last name, R-E-N-K-L. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Margaret Wrinkle, and we're talking about the natural world right outside our window. And Margaret, you've just said that you grew up in rural Alabama, Andalusia, Alabama, and you grew up um, with a lot of freedom uh, as a child. So talk about that freedom well, Andalusia is not a rural community. I should be clear. Okay. It's a small town, but um, and we left it when I was in when I was seven to move to Birmingham. But because of um, some 
periods of time when my mother wasn't really able to mother during, and, and this is all something I write about in late migration. So it's not a, it's not a secret, but my brother and sister and I um, spent a, a great part of our childhood in really in rural Alabama um, with our grandparents on the farm often for, you know, several weeks at a time in the summer or before we were in school and then many, many weekends throughout the year. And it, it, I think it was partly a combination of there just not really being any built-in entertainment for children. I mean, I think Sesame Street even wasn't invented until I was well in school. So, it was partly just that there wasn't any like TV to watch and, and hardly really any children's books, but it was that, but it was also partly that I think children are just inherently interested in the natural world. So nobody really thought about it. I mean, our mother would say, go out and play by which she meant go anywhere you want to, as long as you stay together and come back when you're hungry, essentially. For me, when I lived in uh, rural Mendocino County, we had an all-year creek, and I would run up that creek and back and forth, and and one time we had a visitor from the city, and he had grown up in uh, the Bronx in New York, and when when we were jumping from boulder to boulder, he stopped me. He said, wait, 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 I, I can't go as fast as you can. And we talked about that. And he because he grew up in uh, in a way that the land was flat. It was like cement and it was mm-hmm. right angles. And it was, you know, nothing obstructed his movement around. And I grew up like you did with jumping on boulders and moving from place to place. And and I it made me think, Margaret, that there's something in our um growing up that we learn somatically in our body, that we learn how to do that. That we you know, hear what I'm saying? That it it it's- I think I think we that landscapes and you know, that we get in imp- Pressed upon, imprinted almost upon the landscapes that uh, we were raised in, and and forever afterward, we feel a little bit ill at ease, maybe in in radically different uh, landscapes. We there's a certain slant of light. There's a certain density of trees, there's a certain hilliness or lack thereof that makes us feel at home. And um, and when we don't have it, we might not be consciously really even registering that, that lack or that missing thing. But when we get it back, we feel it pretty much immediately, I think. I, I agree. I agree. I'm just thinking also as we're talking We've done a lot of programs with um, leaders in the environmental movement, and and done special uh, special programming, special series on on deep ecology and that. And we would always ask our guests, you know, how do they first get into something? And each one, every one of them, every single one of them, talked about their childhood and just being fascinated with 
something in the natural world. So if, whether it was like going going to to your stories of you and your brother finding tadpoles and and doing an aquarium with tadpoles uh, and and so tell us about that. I mean, how old were you and what what how did you start that and what happened and what did you learn? I think probably I was around eight and Billy was around seven. Um, because our little sister was born, so and and uh, just not old enough to be with us. We lived in, uh, near a twelve-month creek, and we observed the tadpoles and the stages of tadpoles, and we just thought it would be fun to watch them up close. And we had an aquarium that was not able to be used as an aquarium anymore because it had a crack in the glass and we turned it into a terrarium that had no top which is a fact of the terrarium that figures prominently in um, the story of why we had to take the toads that our tadpoles had turned into back into the woods but but it was it was just one of the things we did that kind of thing all the time it was just just wanting to be up close and see it and share it and and nobody you know my mother used to walk around going you know i don't live in a home i live in a project center cuz we were always making something creating something you know i had they were very tolerant my dad and my mom about i had every kind of animal you could imagine living in my bedroom at one time or another at, when i was that age that's a, that's wonderful well let's talk about um toads and and frogs uh, for a moment because they really are an indicator species as far as uh, what is the health of our environment and um, so what is the health of our environment uh, when you look at that species well I you know I'm not I'm not trying to position myself as a as one of the kinds of environmental writers you mentioned earlier, who are true experts in their field, I want to be clear that I'm I'm just a person who sits on the back steps or looks out the window or walks in the park. I don't have any special expertise. I'm not an ornithologist or an entomologist or a herpetologist. So, you know, all I can tell you is what I've observed myself in my own little half acre. Um, we've lived in this house 28 years, and I have not seen a toad in this yard in at least two decades. I yeah. can't remember the last yeah. time I saw a toad. And there's a whole essay in The the Comfort of Crows about how um, that essay that you were talking about, about just how extravagant the amphibian and reptile life was in those days and, yes. and only we're talking only 50 years ago yes or, um it, it's it's amazing but it makes sense when you think about it amphibians have very thin porous skin and so that if there are toxins in the environment those toxins are felt by amphibian life much more immediately. I'm not going to say less than we feel it, but the ramifications are more immediate than they are to us. But I think those toxins that are in our environment are clearly linked to a number. They have been linked to a number 
of human illnesses too. And they are collectively known as endocrine disruptors because of that connection, not necessarily demonstrated beyond all shadow of a doubt connection, but definitely a connection between high levels of toxins like lawn uh, pesticides, like, like herbicides and like insecticides that have been linked to, to everything from breast cancer to autism to ADD to um, just a, an, an, an incredible um, Alzheimer's of, and maybe Parkinson's. Yeah, Parkinson's for sure. Yeah. And, um, and Parkinson's has been linked to chemical fertilizer. It's not even yeah. an insecticide. So it's, um, but we we haven't as a culture or or even in large numbers made that connection. Yeah. I know so many people with young children who will go to Whole Foods to buy organic milk for their kids, but then let their lawn services drench their yards with poison. Right. Or even seeing the disconnect. And then you see the kids rolling around and on the lawn. I mean, we've all done it when we were growing up and rolling around on the lawn and they're just picking up all the that pesticide right in the skin. That's that's right. Yeah. But you know, they don't that that connection isn't as clear, but when you've lived in the same house for 28 years and there are no toads in your yard, yeah. The connection's much more transparent, I think. And you know what else and the road was filled with was insects hitting oh. your gla- your windshield and hitting your headlights. Oh, we don't see that anymore either. I was wondering why that was. Thank you, but you know, within a couple of years, it was only a couple of years they all disappeared. Within a couple of years, it, no more. I was shocked. So we know that there's, you know, like the the plummeting population of monarch butterflies uh, is, I mean, just transparently connected to genetically modified corn, because gen- the the corn when we talk about genetically modified crops, what they're modified to do is withstand the effects yeah. of a particular herbicide that we know as Roundup. And, um, and so instead of even using chemicals on a a specific field and then going to the next field and using chemicals, um, farmers were able to just indiscriminately, you know, spray this, uh, glyphosate or Roundup just from, you know, horizon to horizon. And they were wiping out, uh, milkweed. The plant yeah. that monarch butterflies right through the heart of America in the primary right. flyway. Yeah, and um, and you saw in the the very next year this unbelievable dramatic drop in monarch butterfly numbers, yeah. and like eighty percent gone in one year's time. So all it takes is one change of that magnitude, and it can affect whole populations. Exactly. And that's such a, that, that particular butterfly is so uh, unique in so far as its migration patterns going from central Mexico up to Canada. And also it's the only species that I think has what they call um, a variable interval of life cycle. 
which is just amazing because they they several generations it takes several generations to get up to canada one generation to get back and that generation then um uh, roost together in these clusters in the oilamel forests of central uh, mexico that are also being destroyed but anyway they 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 congregate there and they live nine months that one generation, and then they started. You know what all they over. call that one generation? Tell me. I love this. They call it the Methuselah generation. Oh, isn't that great? Isn't that fine? Oh, that's so fine. I oh, I'm running out of time here. I'm here with Margaret Wrinkle, and we're talking about all sorts of wonderful natural things that occur in the planet. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Margaret Wrinkle, and she is the author of many books, including The Comfort of Crows. I'd, I'd love to talk about, uh, there is something that you mention in, in your book about going back 40 years later to your college and looking at the the growth of the trees and the bushes and everything and the birds and the flowers and all of the the life that the natural life there on the campus and i call that um there is something that we have what we call the shifting baseline and each generation has this baseline of what they know to be the natural world but that shifts i mean the the baseline that you had 40 years ago is very different from the generations of college students today uh, so can you say something about how that was for you to walk on the campus and what you felt to see how it changed i just remember in in that essay you're talking about this professor who had come to Auburn from Michigan. And he was just telling our class, I think it was probably, I'm sure it had nothing to do with what we were studying. I think he was just probably make, you know, passing time before class really started. But he was saying that he had had to, he had had no choice but to install air conditioning in his house, though he had never had air conditioning before because he could handle the heat, but the bird song was so loud outside his study, he couldn't think because of the birds singing, and he needed to be able to close the window. And I remember when I was visiting in 2019, so many of the trees are gone because they've extended the campus. They've built new buildings, and they've torn down old buildings and put up new buildings in their place, and and that always causes the loss of trees. There just really wasn't that same cacophony of birdsong that my professor was describing in his, 
in his study and outside his study. And so I, it, it made me think about just what you describe. It made me think about how the college students wandering that campus right then were, were probably thinking that they were hearing a lot of birds and only somebody who knew what it had sounded like 40 years earlier would realize that that was not so many birds really. And it, and of course, 40 years ago, there were far fewer than there had been 40 years before that. Right. And, and this is one of the things that makes it so hard for people to understand the crisis we're really facing at a visceral level, because you have to have a certain amount of age to have observed these things happening with your own eyes. And it's hard to take it in as an abstraction. It's really much easier to take it in when you can think about when's the last time I saw a turtle in my yard? When's the last time I saw lightning bugs? When's the last time I saw a butterfly? And and then it's it's only when you start to ask those questions that you then began to wonder what's happened. What's happened exactly in your writings? What's so wonderful about them is that you constantly take us back to, okay, all of that is going on. It is going on. We see it. We feel it. But you say, okay, we can write checks to to the National Wildlife Foundation or whatever it is, or we sign a petition. But you say, go out and make a garden. And even make an untidy garden. I love it. And you, so you remind us, okay, we hold all of that, but we can also do something else that nurtures our soul and also nurtures the natural world. So say something about your untidy garden. One thing I think that happens, well, first of all, it helps to know that an untidy garden is more helpful to the natural world than a hypertidy one is. So in nature, plants are tangled together. They create a dense um, overstory at the garden level uh, that protects the roots of the plant from excessive sun. It holds moisture in and it gives little creatures a place to hide. I was watching a very young rabbit yesterday morning early just trying out the hopping apparatus and and it kept leaping into the air and twisting around and then running around my pollinator garden and then dashing through it from one side to the other. And when it finally decided it was time to go to bed for the day, it found a little patch of Solomon seal to tuck itself into, you know, that's very protected and shaded and and, and invisible. There was, unless you had been standing in my front window watching it, you would never know there was a little bunny in there. And I think that knowing that the garden benefits from profusion and entanglement and wildness is the best possible combination because you think, okay, it's not just easier, it's better. And you can hardly ever go wrong with something that is both easier and better. There you go. There you go. <laughs> easier and better. And I know that you have planted many, many trees in your yard. 
And you have watched in your neighborhood the tearing down of some of the older homes and things I call them McMansions are being erected. There's a phrase that the developers might do, they they might say, uh, the roots were of the these old trees are inconvenient. That's the phrase you use. Roots are inconvenient. It blew my circuits. I I mean I I've had recently in the last few weeks in my life right here, right outside my window, and and I I feel bereft that I did not figure out the name of the tree. I do know the tree and it was huge. It was like maybe um, 14 inches across its its uh, trunk. It's been there a long time. And the corporation that owns the place, the apartments where I live, felt like the roots were inconvenient. That's right. Uh, and because it was kind of going something to do with the sewer, sewage system and the pipes. And rather than spend extra money to figure that out, they cut all these seven of these old trees down. And I watched it happen in a day and it just broke my heart. I wrote a piece about it because it just broke my heart to see that. And and you plant lots of trees. And I know you've had your neighbors say, I don't want your leaves in my yard, so you shouldn't have so many trees. They have too many leaves. <laughs> so what's your response to neighbors who are saying um, you have too many trees? Well, that neighbor is gone. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> but, uh, but and my neighbors are wonderful. A few years ago, I put up, we live on a corner lot, and I put up a sign um, on one side, on one street, and a sign on the other street. Uh, uh, one on one street, the sign is from the Xerxes Society for um, the protection of uh, invertebrates, and it's uh, a certified pollinator habitat sign. It says that my 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 garden is a certified pollinator habitat, and on the other street, there's a sign that says. Um, that sign is from the Tennessee Wildlife Federation, and it says that that our yard is a certified wildlife habitat. And I think when people understand that there's a reason for what you're doing, the Xerxes Society sign even has a QR code you can point your phone at, and it will take you to some information about what a pollinator habitat is, what pollinators need, what pollinators need you not to do, and it's in. And I think that creating um, a condition where my yard does look messy. It's a very scruffy yard and the yards that surround us are pristine. But I think my neighbors understand why because of those signs and because they know me. And and my hope is that someday it will, they might decide that to join, you know, to combine their property with to create a, a a corridor even that is you know there's only so much a person with half an acre can do and if my neighbor with the half acre lot on one side and my neighbor with the half acre not on the other side and my later neighbor with the half acre lot across the street if they all 
they don't have to do exactly what we've done, but if they held off on the pesticides and if they planted some trees and some native plants that would feed our wild neighbors, there would be instantly a profusion of life, an, an explosion of life, because nature is just waiting to bounce back. Yes. 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 It's so resilient. It really is if we give it half a chance. And we've done programs about the um, the pesticides and what they've done to the whole food chain and everything. It, it just... Um, it, it's really important, and I think it's it's coming up too. I think even uh, there's some legislation now. There's some realization on a, on a political level uh, about pesticides and and things and what they're doing because there've been some fairly uh, strong and big lawsuits that some of these companies are losing because uh, people are saying, "Hey, you can't do this." So. But it's so much fun to have it like right there. And I, I'm I'm thinking, Margaret, of your own life in the wildlife um, that you share outside. But let's go inside for for a moment. Um the companion on your desktop. I don't know if you still have this companion. I mean, you've written this book and it's been several years probably that you have this neighbor that you share your life with at your desk. Well, I think you're talking about the spider. I am talking about <laughs> that the spider. spider. Is, uh, that spider is gone. That spider, that spiders don't, that, that particular species of spider doesn't live for very long. But yeah. the spider's children, they are everywhere. Okay, let's talk about that a little more thoroughly in just one moment. I just want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Margaret Rankle, and she is the author of The Comfort of Crows, The Backyard Year, and also the author of Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss, and the other book, Graceland at Last, Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South. If you want to know more about her website, go to margaretwrinkle.com, and she spells her last name R-E-N-K-L, margaretwrinkle.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Margaret Renkel, and we're talking about the natural world and tidy gardens and sharing our life with wildlife, even at our desktop. And we were just starting to talk about a, a spider that you shared your desktop with. Tell us, how was that? A lot of people would say, oh, oh I got to crush a spider. I got to get rid of a spider. But you had a different response. Well, I think people do have that reaction to spiders. There are certain things in the natural world that you have a harder time persuading people to love. Almost everybody can be persuaded to love a blue jay. Not so much a rat snake or a house spider, but they all have a place. And in this particular summer, that when when I wrote that essay, there we were keeping a worm composter uh, only a few feet away uh, next to the to my writing table and and the the compost materials were attracting fruit fruit flies that were coming in through cracks in the window and when the door was open. And so I would take one of the bananas or uh, uh, apple or something apple core that was attracting the fruit flies and I would put it in this outdoors in this contraption, this special kind of hummingbird feeder because hummingbirds, many people don't know this, but hummingbirds do require protein to feed their babies. They're feeding on nectar primarily as adults, but they need to feed their babies protein and the fruit flies are the perfect size for a hummingbird baby. So I would take, so I would open the worm composter and this cloud of fl- fruit flies would erupt out of there when I was taking out a piece of fruit to put in the hummingbird feeder. But I didn't have to worry about the fruit flies because the spider took care of them. There she was, just uh, with her web stretched between uh, an African violet and a and a Mother's Day orchid. And um, right there where I could look at her, and we just had a very companionable summer together while she was she was feeding the hummingbirds, taking care of the, the fruit flies that didn't make it outside to feed the hummingbirds. I love it. And they're just a cycle of life right there in front of you. Yeah. And you also have a little piece in the book about a spider in the sink, I think. And there was a spider in my bathroom sink. I had turned on the water and then I noticed the spider and I quickly turned off the water so it wouldn't go down the drain. And what I noticed, Margaret, was uh, it's an image that's so burned in my in memory is the spider got close to, almost went down the drain and it lifted up and I want to call it a paw, but it was a leg. <laughs> it lifted up one of its leg to brace itself against the drain plunger. You know, I watched it. It wasn't a big spider. It was a smaller spider. And it just lifted its leg and braced itself against that drain plunger so it wouldn't go down the drain. And I realized there was some sort of consciousness in this little being, this live creature. 
And I was able to coax it away from the drain. And then eventually I was able to take it outside. And I was so happy. I was so happy that it survived and it didn't go down the drain. And I don't know. So there, that spider that you were with, I mean, just thinking about these tiny, tiny little beings that are part of the wildlife that we live amongst. It's right there. I think it's, I think that's, that's one of the things I wrote this book for is to, is just in the hope that people would start to look around and recognize that all of these creatures they share the world with have a consciousness and they all will squat down when they see us and hold still and hope that we go away and when you start looking at the world that way, it's very hard to go back. And I want to be clear, I don't think that the natural world is endlessly resilient. We have lost and we are going to lose so many species, not just individual toads from our backyards, but whole species of amphibians we have lost and are going to lose. But if we are falling in love with our own companions, our own natural companions in our own ecosystems, whether that's in a, an apartment in the city or a half-acre yard in the suburbs or or a, a, a multi-acre farm, it doesn't matter. When we fall in love with them, we can't help but want to save them. And once that consciousness, once we hit that level, we start to understand that, then we are able to become, make active efforts to save them, not just to plant milkweed, not just to plant trees, but to write our senators, to write our congressmen, to exert pressure on the people who can change things at a macro level while we are still changing things at the micro level. Yes, yes, boy, I, I'm so with you with that. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd love for you also as, as a writer, I mean, you do you write for the New York Times and you have a regular column there and you you're you're constantly writing like with the um, humanities Tennessee, and so anyway, you do a lot of writing all the time. And I'd love for you to share anything that you can say about writing as an exercise of faith in you, and how how you often take a wandering route with your with your writing. What share with us any. Uh, ideas and advice about how you write that might inspire us? For me, writing is, um, it is a kind of, it is a kind of active meditation, depending on what I'm writing. If I'm writing a political argument, not, not so much, but, but writing about the natural world, even at the very domestic level, or writing about my family, or writing about anything that's close to my heart that way. There's something about assigning words one after another. There's something about that that is very calming. It takes 
something that feels chaotic and unruly in my own mind, and it imposes a kind of order. And in doing that, it slows me down and it calms me down and I can look at it with greater clarity. The The, the one trick I have for that, you know, maybe might be of use to other writers is that I, I really believe that writing every day, not necessarily at great length, not necessarily for a long time, but writing every day it helps so much but it because it keeps those gears turning invisibly behind the scenes so when i'm writing something and i don't quite know what the word is or i don't know where to go next or i can't figure out how to get from point a to point b i know what point a and point b are but i don't i don't know what that bridge is between them i go for a walk i you know i I wash the dishes, I hang clothes on the line. And while my mind is nominally occupied with the task at hand, the other part of my mind is worrying. It's figuring this out without my direction. And so I think that there's a big advantage to working a little bit at a time. And and I wrote late migrations very largely in 15-minute increments mm. because that was the, the nature of my life at the time. I, there was That was all I could put together. I had a full-time editing job. I had a dying mother-in-law. I had three kids at home. Yeah. And, uh, but what it meant was that when I sat back down for that 15 minutes the next day, I didn't have to reacquaint myself with my project. My brain, my mind had been working through it even while I had been busy doing something else. Exactly. And that just reminds me, Margaret, that you you have written about uh, a little bit about the science of of walking. Mm-hmm. That that it does something to the brain. Do you do you recall that research? Yes, it was a Stanford University research project where they had college students they did a test uh, that is widely recognized to measure creativity, um, a baseline test. And then they they divided the students into three groups. They had one group of students go for a walk on a preordained trek on campus. They had one group of students writing, I mean, walking on a treadmill. And they had another group of students who stayed at a desk. And then they re-administered the creativity test. And they found that both the students who were walking on a treadmill and the students who were walking on campus measurably improved their creativity quotient after having walked. Wow. Okay. We're all going to get out there and walk, right? Oh, Margaret, it's been such a pleasure being with you. Thank you so much for being on New Dimensions today. Thank you. I've been speaking with Margaret Wrinkle, and she's the author of The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year, as well as Late Migrations and also Graceland at Last. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, margaretwrinkle.com, and she spells her last name, R-E-N-K-L, margaretwrinkle.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org.
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3,794. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.